0: It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And since we do need to talk about the new Congress that has finally, after much drama, settled into place, I come to you with a special drop for our podcast listeners who I know are very invested in this conversation. To recap, for those who have somehow missed it, the new House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, has, of course, made a great many promises to a small cadre of the most extremist members of the Republican Party— including QAnon conspiracists and election deniers and all the rest of it. Despite this, few expect McCarthy will actually be able to lead the caucus in the end. But nonetheless, this is the reality we are in now. All of this, of course, has consequences for all of us. And I also suspect it's a useful object lesson in where we stand in our national politics and why. So to think this through... I am joined by Theodore Johnson. He is a senior advisor at New America, a retired commander in the U.S. Navy, and a writer for The Bulwark, which, as you know, is a place we often turn when trying to understand what's going on in the Republican Party, and really just amongst a lot of folks who no longer feel like they have a home place in American politics today. Uh, Theodore, thanks
1: for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
0: So you wrote a couple of columns before this McCarthy drama that I actually want to talk about specifically, but let's do start with your thoughts on the speaker fight itself. As I said, you know, McCarthy has made a huge number of concessions to the most extreme members of the Republican caucus. Just what do you make of the deal and what do you think the consequences of it will be?
1: Yeah, it was something to watch. You, you know, I think it was pretty much a foregone conclusion that McCarthy was going to be the next speaker. And I think some folks anticipated there being a little static with, with that. I don't think anyone expected it to go 15 rounds before <laughs> he was successful. So, so that was a spectacle to watch. It was just American history in the making. But I'll tell you, I, I know that Congress is a place for deal-making. I know that this is how the place works. But to watch it play out so blatantly um exchanging you know making concessions for chairmanships of committees um in, in exchange for the seat of power felt icky to me mm. frankly it felt unprincipled and um and the lack of discussion deliberation across the aisle for who would be the next speaker in this moment where a coalition candidate uh for lack of a better term might have been an option that was also disheartening so it was um it was Interesting to watch because of its historic nature, but it was a depressing spectacle of of democracy, in in my view, um, because of the way it happened. And just the last point on this, the fact that it was the election-denying wing of the Republican Party that was holding the entire government hostage. I mean, new members couldn't be sworn in. Um, Representative elects couldn't answer calls from their constituents because they'd not been sworn in. Their staff wasn't getting paid on, on the committees uh to know that election deniers were responsible for that and then ultimately failed in their project of not uh, of keeping mccarthy out of the seat uh and then exacted concessions from from mccarthy in exchange for for being intransigent is um you know that's that's not how our politics should be working
0: it was surely a spectacle in every way that you just described. I mean, it's, you know, and, and you know, and, and down to the fact that, you know, the C SPAN cameras, because of the oh rules, goodness. we were able to see how the sausage gets made in a way that we rarely see, at least in modern times, which I think was just alarming to a lot of people, even though we know, right? <laughs> right. Um, that there is horse trading for committees and things like that. It was really shocking. Um, I want to pick up on something you mentioned, this, the idea that there could have been a consensus, uh, candidate across party lines Mm -hmm. was a really fascinating moment, um, because, of course, like, in the coverage, uh, it was, like, a non-starter, that's never gonna happen. Right. But I have never in my lifetime, um, seen where we, like, that it was even something you would speculate about, that there might be something more like a parliamentary system, um. And it felt—it surprised me how, like, much I kind of longed for it, <laughs> you know? That was like my—you know, that I was like, oh, wow, that could be really cool. Like, we could move past a two-party system. I, it, it, I just didn't expect that turn in the conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah it was it was something. That, and, you know, I've been an independent my entire political life. Um, and so I, I long for moments like this where the two parties get together and do what's best for the country instead of trying to just sort of entrench themselves in power to the exclusion of, of everyone else. The, the other interesting thing about this is at the same time that we were in this merry-go-round of voting in the House, I think it was in Ohio and Pennsylvania, the state assemblies there actually did um, cr- elect coalition candidates mm. to be the speaker of those assemblies because of, frankly, the far right wing of the Republican Party in the states, were um, they just weren't being cooperative. And so the Democrats and establishment Republicans uh, got together to elect coalition candidates. And so not only um, was the idea attractive to see it play out in the states, the laboratories of democracy, yeah. as we're stuck in this moment in the House, kind of gave me a little bit of hope that maybe it was, um, it was possible. But then, you know, reality sunk in. There was no way Democrats were going to get behind any Republican Um, maybe there might've been a chance for someone recently, uh, out of the house that left as a Republican, but was, was sort of left because they didn't like the Trump version of it, maybe something there, but the partisanship runs so deep and is so polarizing and so connected to our personal identities that this kind of compromise to play out on a national stage with C-SPAN cameras, chronicling, as you said, every moment, I just, I, I actually think the cameras probably made the thing less likely Mm. Um. In, in this moment.
0: And I mean, it's just, there's the incentives are just not there That's for, right. oh, for, for anybody sure. to do this. But it is just a, one more beat on this that is interesting. Is like, you know, I, I certainly, uh, really since the dawn of the Trump era, have been in conversations with various conservatives who no longer feel a place in the Republican Party about this idea of like, well, what, what is the future for those individuals? Is there a new party that could form? What what comes? You know, because it, what where we're at cannot continue indefinitely. Um, right. And I just wonder, as someone who is an independent, I mean, putting that question to you now, um, having watched this unfold, as you said, there's in, in a couple of states we actually have seen what could be a breakdown ultimately of the two party system. I mean, do you where do you sit on like what might come?
1: Yeah, I would love for there to be a third, maybe even a fourth party and allow Americans to sort of go with the one that suits them best and then force each of the parties to work with one another in order to get majority votes to do anything, whereas where no one party has enough votes to to shove their agenda down the throats of the country. I, I just don't think it's going to happen. I think we are stuck with this two-party system. And should a third party arise, um, if American history is any guide, then one of the existing three parties will eventually fade and then we'll be stuck with two parties again. Um, so I think the, what we can hope for in, in the near term is a fracturing of the two parties where the fracturing doesn't cause the parties to actually break apart, but uh, requires it facilitates coalition building across parties. So you may have like far left progressives in the Bernie Sanders camp along with blue dog Democrats, sort of establishment Democrats like Biden, and maybe libertarian Republicans getting together on something around privacy or around antitrust um, issues. And so I think the best we can hope for in the near term is that there are two parties in each of the two parties. There's sort of like a center-left party and a far-left party, a center-right party, far-left, or far-right, rather, and then force each of those four factions to form coalitions specific to the issue of the day in order to get things passed. And if we can get there, I I would be... That's that's an incremental step for... An approximation of a (laughs) multi-party system. (laughs) That's right.
0: You know, it's interesting even hearing you say that. I'm thinking about, you know, I heard uh, the publisher The Bulwark, Sarah Longwell, on another show recently. We've had her on here a couple of times to talk about this stuff. Um, And she was pointing out something that comes to mind as you're talking about just, like... I feel like we don't even really have the language mm-hmm. at this point to describe ourselves politically. Um, the news coverage and the commentary around this particular fight consistently referred to the sort of this band of 20 uh, extremists as far right, as hard right, as extreme conservatives. But they don't actually in any way, shape or form bear resemblance to those words. They don't have a (laughs) policy agenda that reflects conservatism as we've understood it, or really a policy agenda of any kind, you know? Um, uh, And I just wonder about how that even holds us back. Like we don't, the, the language we have for left, right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, it doesn't even seem to really apply, at least certainly amongst Republicans at this point.
1: Yeah, certainly. Absolutely. You know, there was an interesting paper out from a, a group called More in Common um, about the seven political tribes in America. And it essentially, um, instead of making people choose between conservative or liberal, Democrat or Republican, they created a like seven categories that uh, is sort of a, a spectrum of ideologies from the very far right to the very far left. And most Americans were not at the polls. So most Americans were in like the middle three categories that basically they were either centrists or a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. And so, the, but in their voting, they were Democrats or Republicans or independents that almost always voted either Democrat or always mm-hmm. voted either Republican. So in effect, they were independents that were partisans without the label. And so our two-party politics, sort of to bring a full circle, makes it almost impossible to get a full sense of the gradations of ideology and politics that Americans hold and wow. um, kind of dumbs down um, our policy in the, in the process because there's no mechanism to express the, uh, you know, where we fall out. What we the, actually believe. What we actually I mean, believe. What we actually what, 300 want. 300
0: million people, you know, couldn't exactly. possibly be divided into two political parties.
1: Right. Like, and you might be like Republican on one question and Democratic on the other one. So what do you vote in the presidential election? There's, you, you'd like have to subjugate, almost. Um, you have to find like the one or two things you care about, vote on that and ignore everything else about your politics, which may be out of step with uh, how you vote.
0: I do want to ask you about one particular piece of policy now following uh, this fight uh, over the speakership in the Republican Party. It seems like one place that the deal that McCarthy has made with the extremists might in fact fall apart is is over defense spending. Mm. Um, and um, are you following that given your background and sort of help us understand the dynamics there? Because again, this seems like it's going to be the place where it all falls apart is over, over spending on the military.
1: Yeah, it, if there's any sacred cow in American politics, it is defense spending. You do not want to be the politician that says, I voted to cut defense spending because it also means you, do, you want to cut the pay of people serving in the military and you want to, you know, give them lesser equipment and put, send them into war, um, not equipped to to win outright very quickly. So everyone, you know, essentially everyone votes to increase defense spending every year. Under no, doesn't matter which party is in the White House or which party controls Congress. It always goes up. But I think what happened this past year was that Congress increased defense spending almost twice as much as what President Biden put forward in his budget. He wanted to increase it by $45 billion and it was increased by almost 90 billion, 86 billion or so, 8% increase, which brings the defense spending to almost $900 billion this year. So the interesting thing about this current argument within the Republican Party is that there's a contingent that doesn't want to fund Ukraine in the way that uh, the United States has done over the last several months. And they tend to be sort of Russian sympathizers, to, to put it nicely. And so you've got this bunch of money in the defense spending bill that is meant to either backfill what we sent over to the Ukrainians or to plus up the financial assistance um either direct cash or through equipment and other things that were given to the Ukrainians and you've got this cadre of republicans who are against US support of Ukraine in the war with Russia then that creates a uh, a um an opportunity for conflict within the Republican Party that's supposed to be the party of defense hawks and 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 pro spending So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. My sense of it is um, in order to protect their political flanks, they will continue to support increased defense spending, but they will extract concessions out of McCarthy Hmm. from how much goes to other places outside of of America, not just to Ukraine, but to in any sort of uh, security cooperation assistance or exercises with other nations to have this sort of America first stamp on a defense budget and um, and do so by cutting spending that goes to other places, even if the overall spending increases. And in this way, they can claim they're pro-defense, they supported the defense increase in spending, but they're keeping that money home because Americans count more than, you know, protecting democracy from Vladimir Putin.
0: Okay, so even before the 118th Congress officially took charge, you wrote something that I do now want to talk about. You pointed out that this is the most diverse Congress ever in history, the the most non-white members ever, which is just, it's really kind of a remarkable note. So let's first just lay out that diversity. Like, what are you talking about here? How is this the most diverse Congress ever?
1: Right. So there are 140 people of color in this current Congress. Um That's the largest number ever. It's the largest the Congressional Black Caucus has ever been. It's the largest number of Hispanic Americans that's been in Congress. It's the most number of openly gay mem- serving members of Congress at 13. It's the most number of Black Republicans in Congress since 1877. Uh, and so on just score after score, uh, we are getting... um tons of diversity on different vectors in this Congress that the nation just hasn't seen before. And, um, it's just, it's quite remarkable that even in this uh, polarized time, we're in, in terms of race and gender and sexual orientation, we're seeing gains, frankly, on both sides of the aisle, very much so on one side, very little on the other, but on both sides, uh, in the kind of diversity that, uh, makes its way into Congress. So that's, that's reassuring. And that's to say nothing of the, large number of people of color that ran in republican primaries that didn't necessarily make it to the general or lost in the general but even that at the primary level diversity was off the charts
0: yet in your column you did not present this as a reassuring fact no. you said that we should not look at this with optimism about the future and so
1: why yeah and it's because uh, what i hinted at there is that this diversity has been partisan and so of the 140 people of color in this current congress 100 in the teens, um, I believe, are on the Democratic side and then um, 20 or so are on the Republican side. I think it's 113 to 27 or something like that. And so the problem with this in this hyper-partisan politic, political environment that we are in, when diversity is on one side of the aisle and severely lacking on the other side of the aisle, it becomes a point of contention in and of itself. Um, and be- because when the Democrats talk about something regarding racial justice and the Republicans don't have many people on its side of the aisle that have a lived experience that could talk firsthand about that sort of thing, then it becomes an issue of Democrats and Republicans, liberals versus conservatives, instead of people of color talking about their American experience without any partisan label attached to it. And so when diversity becomes partisan, then issues of racial equality, racial injustice, um, gender inequality, et cetera, they become partisan issues instead of issues about how to create a nation where we're all created equal or where we have equal protection under the law. And this is bad. This is bad because our partisan identities are layered on top of our racial and ethnic identities, which are layered on top of a number of political positions. And it's really hard to find compromise between these two parties when they're so different from everything from what they believe to what they look like. And I, I don't think that bodes well for the country. And we've seen it play out in Trump's presidency, the reaction to Barack Obama's presidency. And frankly, even during Kevin McCarthy's 15 votorama Speaker's uh, election, race inserted, injected itself into that conversation as well between Cory Bush on the Democratic side and Byron Donalds, uh, the Republican who was um, the anti-McCarthy choice for eight rounds of, of the Speaker election. And of course, he's the second term Black Republican out of Florida.
0: It sort of harks back to the conversation we were just having about, you know, do we have the right language for any of this, you know? I mean, it's right. it's hard to be clear that, you know, are we talking about race? Are we talking about partisanship? If race and partisanship have become the same thing in a given debate, which thing are we talking about? <laughs> you know, it's very easy to lose the thread on this stuff.
1: <laughs> right. So, let me give you two two examples to sort of bring this point home that you just made. So, one Donald Trump signed the First Step Act in the latter part of 2018, early 2019. This was a, uh, it was a significant bill, but it basically did some federal prison reform, um, stuff. So a small sliver of the people, amount of people incarcerated, but a significant bill in and of itself. Democrats supported the First Step Act mostly as a racial justice issue because of the crack cocaine disparities between how, um, those people who are found with those drugs are sentenced, the disparities between black folks and white folks, et cetera. So. That's why they came to the table. Republicans came to the table because, as it turns out, it's very expensive to incarcerate people. It's a bad use of taxpayer dollars, especially when it doesn't reduce crime. And it makes people, when they return to society, it's hard for them to get housing, hard for them to get a job. And so they came to the table as a way of saving taxpayer money. It was an issue of fiscal conservatism, as well as some of their Christian evangelical aspects of of the party, thinking about redemption and second chances. So they come together to do this, uh, to reform a a racist criminal justice system, but Democrats came to the table on the question of race, Republicans over the question of really fiscal conservatism. So is that a racial justice win or not?
0: Right, okay, well, let's take a quick break and then talk about another piece that Theodore Johnson wrote back during the election uh, about what he's called the Black Silent Majority. That's next.
1: Okay, so, Ted, let's talk
0: about your column on what you've called the black silent majority. You began that column with a set of survey results that show how wrong our assumptions are about people with whom we disagree politically. Uh, And I think this, you know, it connects a lot to what we've been talking about already. And you pointed out that uh, in this survey, on a question about racism— Democrats believed only half of Republicans would say that racism still exists in America, when in fact about 80% of Republicans agree that racism still exists in America. (laughs) And then on policing, that less than half of Republicans thought that Democrats would disagree with the idea that police are bad people, like as human beings, when in fact 85% of Democrats totally disagree with that. So these are obviously striking differences in how we think about each other. Why did you start this column there?
1: Yeah, I started it um, because and this um, series of findings is called The Perception Gap. And it's this idea that we think other people think things um, based on our perceptions of them. And when you ask those folks what they actually believe, we learn that we're not that far apart. And so we've allowed the labels, Democrat and Republican, to be stand-ins for what people who subscribe to either of these labels, what they believe, instead of engaging those folks to find out what they actually believe. And so, and as a result, we don't know what other people think. We have these perceptions of those things. And that makes compromise very difficult, uh, makes incrementalism, deliberation extremely difficult because we arrive to the conversation thinking um something untrue of the other side. And instead of deliberating and coming together, trying to figure out what this um you know, what the middle ground could be, the incentive structure, uh, suggests that it's pushing to the polls is how we get elected in primaries, how we raise money instead of finding common ground. So not only do we not understand each other, there's no incentive for us to understand each other politically and, and our politics, our democratic system, um, is, is a product of that. And so what this piece tries to do is say that this isn't just along party lines. It's also along racial lines that Americans think Black people hold beliefs about certain issues that just aren't true, and Black folks um, uh, also think that th- the country thinks about race in a particular way that isn't always uh, 100% accurate.
0: So what is the Black silent majority then? What is that?
1: Right, so, so this is the large swath of Black folks that hold a policy position on any set of issues that doesn't correspond to what either the loudest voices in Black America are, are saying, or what the perception of what Black people believe is based on how they vote in presidential and congressional elections. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if the, the Democratic Party has has unquestionably moved left over the last decade or two, and because Black folks, 90% of Black folks, vote for Democrats in congressional presidential elections, the assumption is, well, Black folks must be becoming more liberal and progressive, too. So if we want to attract Black voters, we have to say very liberal and progressive things. Um, but when you ask Black folks what they think about public school, for example, um, the majority, last I saw, something like two-thirds of Black families uh, saw charter schools, school choice, homeschooling favorably relative to public school. But the Democratic Party is the, is the party that supports public schools and, and doesn't want to divert public funds to school choice voucher programs that Republicans talk lots about. So that's an example of the majority of Black families thinking about education in one way, but because of the perception based on how they vote, the assumption is that they are um, perfectly aligned with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it comes to reparations, this is another example. The the, uh, last I saw, I think it was something like 75% of Black folks are in favor of reparations, but not necessarily cash payment. They think reparations could come in the form of down payments for houses and the form of affirmative action in the form of scholarships for university going to college and not a a check to, um, to each black person. So what you will find in black America is what you find in every other uh, race and ethnicity, ethnic group in this country is that it's very diverse politically, but our political diversity gets muted by our uniform voting. uh, The fact that we're, we vote for one, basically whichever party is more pro civil rights. And because of that, there's a misunderstanding about what Black people's politics are on any given set of issues.
0: Turns out Black people are human beings like everybody else with a range of opinions about
1: things. Go figure. Who would have thunk it? Uh,
0: um, (laughs) On the reparations thing, you write, based on survey results, that reparations look like the GI Bill Mm. to Black people. That's how you put it, which I thought was an interesting framing of this. But what was also interesting to me is you pointed out that from those survey results, that the support for cash payments is actually highest amongst Black people who identify right. as
1: conservative. Right. And if it, so the first thing is Black conservatism is different than American conservatism writ large. There's You can be Black conservatives, vote Democratic, whereas White conservatives are Republicans. Uh, black conservatism is, is more connected to self-determination, sort of that bootstrap mentality that Booker T. Washington talked lots about a century ago. It's this idea that if government were just to get out of my way, and especially prominent among black men, that, you know, I can actually make it on my own. I don't need government programs. I don't need, you know, special consideration. I just need them to get out of my way. Let me open my business. Let me, you know, take care of myself and my family. And that's all I need. And so cash payments essentially are like a, it's like venture capital Mm. for that self-determination black person. And they prefer that to, you know, using the systems that have always been discriminatory or the institutions that have a history of racism, trying to reform those things and then inject me into those reformed systems to suggest that now I can get a better version of myself out of it. For Black conservatives, that just doesn't resonate as much.
0: It's a really important distinction to make that so many people do not get. And, you know, whereas meanwhile, Black liberalism is an embrace of institutions in a way that—and you make this point in the column— in a way that is hyper-American. And so it's funny in, like, this moment of wokeness and argument over wokeness and how Black people are supposed to be, like, tearing down the American dream with our wokeness. The reality is that whether it's left, right, or center, Black people, like, turn out to have a real investment in the ideas of America.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And that means whether you're a liberal or a conservative— if you are Black, you, there are two things that are true. One, more times than not, you believe that, um, that you are equal to everyone else, that you have just as right to this country as anyone else, that you have just as much skin in the game, and that the federal government is supposed to do what the Declaration and the Constitution demand it does, which is to ensure my equality. And when my equality and my rights are infringed upon, to protect me from those infringements. Now, the difference between Black conservatives and Black progressives is the best way to achieve that equality, the best way to achieve, to realize opportunity and prosperity. Black conservatives want a lighter touch from government and um, and sort of a, a reliance more on their own abilities, assuming that government has cleared the path and leveled the playing field, whereas um, Black progressives recognize the role of institutions and systems in leveling the playing field to ensure that my efforts and energies are rewarded uh, commensurate with everyone else. And so they're actually not talking about different things. They're just putting the emphasis on different aspects. And th- the last thing I want to say on this is to make a distinction between Black conservatives, principled Black conservatives, and like Black Republicans. And those two things aren't always the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Black Republicans, more times than not, as, as of recent, are kind of opportunists. And maybe not, they may say they are believe in lower taxes or defense spending or, or these sorts of things, but the bellwether for the last decade and a half has been, are you a Tea Party patriot or are you a Trump um, acolyte? And if the answer is yes to those two things, you can be a black Republican. If you are a principled conservative, you're probably more likely to find bedfellows in the CBC. Than you are in, among black Republicans. The Congressional Black Caucus. And the Congressional Black Caucus, that's it, right.
0: You know, also, I want to, you mentioned earlier that you feel like the Democratic Party has gotten more left and that's different from what black people want. And I actually want to challenge you on the first part of that mm. because, you know, it's funny, like the conversation about the about the Democratic Party. It's like every election cycle, there's this shock Mm. that Black people have supported a more moderate candidate than a Bernie Sanders, you know? And, you know, like Bernie Sanders, I don't believe, has a massive Black following in the way that, say, Joe Biden does, electorally at least. And some of the most popular Black politicians, Stacey Abrams, Barack Obama, these are very mainstream Democrats. You know, so I just wonder what you think about the—how the misunderstanding of Black community politics that you're talking about affects the conversation about the Democratic Party in general?
1: The, the trending left of the party, and this is all the few surveys and others have shown this, is a function of white Democrats moving to the left. And that's pulling the party left, not, not, uh, not people of color, certainly not, not black folks. Now, of course, among younger black people, uh, especially uh, Black folks out West, in the Midwest, you will see more liberal, more progressive Black folks in that cohort of voters than you will among Black voters in the South, which typically are older and tend to be a little bit more conservative. And because of the way voting works in our country, if you are over the age of 50, you're much more likely to vote than someone under the age of 30. And so the between the generational politics and the regional politics, that gives outsized power to older Black voters, which tend to be more pragmatic and conservative hmm. than the younger, more progressive Black voters, which don't vote at the same rate and certainly don't hold the kind, same kind of economic sway that, that older Black voters yeah, would have. Yeah. So, but, but to your point, all of that gets lost in the fact, well, what does it matter? They 90% of them voting for the Democrat anyway, so let's just, you know, if you're a Republican, you don't have to pay attention to them, and if you're a Democrat, then you just, you Put your finger in the wind to see which way the wind's blowing and say, "Okay, let's do more of that to keep black voters in in the camp. But I think the fact that Biden won this crowded primary the last cycle is an indication that um, the pragmatism of black voters tends to trump everything else at the end of the day. And even though you do have black voters that want very progressive policy, whether it's around reparations or universal health care or, you know, raising the, the top tax rate. Um, those folks, if their candidate doesn't get out of the primaries, uh, which is unlikely given the way the, the how diverse the Democratic coalition is at, at a national level, then um, those Black voters don't abandon the the party just because they weren't as progressive as they'd like. They they come home.
0: They're still going to vote, and they're still going to vote for Democrats because, right, because they're going to make it, sure that Republicans aren't in office.
1: Yeah, and it's because the alternative is just so out of step with what they're looking for that um, they're basically captured in the Democratic Party.
0: Theodore Johnson is a senior advisor at New America, a retired commander in the US Navy, and a writer for The Bulwark. And Ted, I just really appreciate this opportunity to think all this through and just think out loud with you.
1: I uh, much appreciate. I really enjoyed it.
0: Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can always talk back to us, don't forget, by going to notesfromamerica.org, looking for that record button and leaving us a voicemail. Music and mixing by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Regina Dahir, Vanessa Handy, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. And I am Kai Wright, and I will see you on Sunday.